Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Okay, welcome to another episode of Men Up, Men Down, and we welcome Charlie Ho today to the uh, to the podcast. So Charlie is an executive coach and author of Men Down. That's how we how we found him, to be honest. So uh, a man's guide to mental health, which is also endorsed by by Russell Brand, um, amongst other people. I don't know if he should actually say that uh, this this day and age that <laughs> it's endorsed by Russell Brand, but we can talk about that in a minute. Previously, um, Charlie co-founded um, Tapped, which is Birchwater. Having worked for Innocent Drinks, Air Asia, and startups in London, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, from where he cycled the 10,000 miles home for mental health charity SANE. So, there are lots to talk about, Charlie. Um, so, first of all, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, do you want to give us a, a quick overview of, if I say, what, what, what you're doing now? And then also, obviously, what, what you have done, you know, and then we can maybe dive, dive into, you know, the, the book you wrote, as I say, that's that's how we found it. You know, I have a copy here, so I can I can quote things out of the book. Um, so so I read it when we were first in touch, <laughs> and I really enjoyed reading it. So so thanks for writing it. Pleasure. Well, thanks thanks for buying it. So I am an executive coach. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Um, working mainly with business people, kind of on their own well being and performance, as well as the teams that they're leading. I also, as you said, I wrote, wrote that book on, on male mental health a few years ago as a result of my own personal experiences with anxiety and depression, just as kind of wanting to put something out there to, to help other people and make make a difference. So that's kind of where I am now. My background is, as you mentioned, I've, I've actually come from the food and drink industry originally, Innocent Drinks, I'm now, now bought and owned by the, and run by the Coca-Cola company. In London, and, and then we moved over to my then girlfriend, now wife, and I moved over to Hong Kong and Malaysia and spent a couple of years out there working. Well, she ended up being four years working for startups. We planned to go for a year, and it turned into four plus one for the so five in total with the, the bike trip home. It's a great place, lots of opportunity, really exciting, flying all over the region, working for these startups. And then AirAsia, in, um, so I ended up working for a startup airline uh, in Guam, of all places. It's the US territory on the Asian side of the, Asian side of the Pacific, it's a bit like Hawaii, but on the Asian side. And then, like I said, AirAsia, uh, the largest low-cost carrier in the world, actually. And then we did this big bike trip home. We kind of wanted to, we realized that we wanted to spend a lot of time with friends and family. Having been away for, for four years then, um, that was becoming more and more important that we wanted to, you know, kind of settle down, I guess, and have a family. Um, so I, on a whim, one day said to my, my then girlfriend, what about cycling home? And she is a bit mad and thought, okay. She kind of said, yeah, why not? Off the bat, she was like, yeah, that sounds quite fun. Let's look into it. So were you uh, cyclists already? Well, I've, I've done quite a lot of cycling and done triathlons and all that kind of thing. She had never done any more cycling than between lectures at university. So, right. So no, but she's quite gung-ho. And yeah, so she was up for it. And about four or five months later, we set off. We got sponsored by AirAsia and to do it and then obviously raised money for for um mental health charity saying as, as well mentioned so we had a wonderful 
year-long cycle back from Kuala Lumpur through Southeast Asia and China and Central Asia and even back through Turkey and Europe um, and ended up back in front of Big Ben on the 23rd of December 2014. So really wonderful kind of life-changing trip and then ended up going back and, and setting up a startup with an ex-innocent colleague of mine having had that kind of startup experience in, in Asia, gave me a real taste for it and ran that for four and a half years. And my business partner, she still runs that. I then in that time was having some mental health challenges um, as I had done for years before, but I guess I was addressing them and getting therapy and help in many forms. And that then kind of culminated in me doing a master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology. Yeah, and that's where I found coaching and just kind of fell into it very naturally. It, it was something that I had no intention of doing. I didn't know anything about until I started the master's and it just absolutely loved it and found it unbelievably powerful. And yeah, I've been doing that ever since. I mean, sort of on the uh, the interview where I mentioned I was, I found an interview um, sort of that you gave during the pandemic around the time that the book came out. And, and in it, you sort of said about that you'd you know you'd experienced anxiety um i mean you know i don't want to tell your story for you but you're able to sort of a lot of your behaviors or reactions you managed to sort of tie back to experiences as a teenager so i mean you know enough to say sort of i i Volker said he's read the book. I have to confess I haven't read your book, but from what I've sort of, you know, read and, and found online, there was a lot that resonated sort of for me. I guess, you know, the term anxiety and put that in inverted commas, you know, it's it sort of now I can look back to, you know, teenage years and I'm like, all right, yeah, I had anxiety. Whereas at the time, you know, I guess it was like, oh, this is how everyone feels. And, you know, you just get on with it. And then, you know, sort of, well, yeah, now I, I, I guess sort of having reached a certain point and realizing, you know, that, well, I wasn't well, something wasn't right. I needed to make changes, you know, and it's almost like I can, I can then sort of, you know, look back and say, all oh, right, well, I was experiencing anxiety sort of as a teenager. I mean, I remember a, a job I had where, you know, like, my stomach would be churning before I went in. And yeah, at the time I couldn't, you know, I was just like, why, why do I sort of react like this? So yeah, I mean, could you just sort of tell us about your sort of journey of, well, you know, sort of discovery and yeah, how you kind of realized something wasn't right and how you then put that right? Sure. Or, or well, say, and, and I, Sorry, the other thing I want to say, you know, I say put that right. I know that the other thing that you you sort of mentioned is it is a constant, you know, it is an ongoing thing that, you know, sometimes you need to manage yourself better than others. And, you know, other times it affects, I'm going to say you, I mean, one. Yeah. How do you sort of embrace the good days and manage the bad days? Sure. So, I mean, I, I probably had about 10 years of suffering from anxiety and a couple of hours of depression from those teenage years that you mentioned when I was badly bullied for two years. And during that 10 years, I had symptoms of depression and anxiety, but didn't realize what it was. And as you said, you just kind of get on with it and you know, you're, you're young and you just kind of think of it as, as part of life. And, um, and then I guess in my 20s, I started having very physical symptoms 
where I was getting huge amounts of tension in my body. I had like full on chest pains. I had huge tension in my back, constantly pulling muscles in my back. Um, and this was not nothing that wasn't doing anything physical that was causing this, these symptoms. So I think it was really that point that I started realizing that something was definitely amiss. And I think the fact that the, the debate and the conversation around mental health being in the mainstream and being in media and all the PR around it and the famous people getting involved and so on probably had a large part to do with it as well. So I started understanding what it was and yeah, ended up actually going to my GP and doing counseling. I mean, I, I, I spent so 10 years suffering, not really knowing that about 10 years of self-discovery, I would call it, of figuring out what was going on. And I, at, for that 10 year period, I was looking for something to fix me. I thought I would find some therapist or some pill I ended up taking antidepressants uh, sertraline and an SSRI I was thinking that something will will sort me out whether it's the pill or a therapist or a, a yoga retreat I was on a silent vipassana meditation retreat you know I did just about everything everything I possibly could get my hands on I tried and I was just um hoping that something would fix me and I definitely learned in that in that process as you as you kind of touched on there that it is an ongoing process. Mental health, your psychological well-being, just as your physical well-being is an ongoing process. You can't just eat one healthy meal, go to the gym once and expect to live a long and happy life. It's You need to be constantly exercising. You need to be constantly eating well. The same thing goes for your mind. You need to be constantly doing things that will that will build your resilience, that will manage your psychological health. And, I, and and so I think in that 10-year period, I tried all these different things and I picked up different bits and pieces. And what I would say is that I created a toolkit that allows me to manage the ups and downs of life because we all go through bad stuff, difficult times, things happen, right? And um, I think my ability to, to catch myself before I go down is much better now. And and so my, my kind of baseline resilience is much higher. Than it, than it ever has been and it's like I said it's an ongoing process so you know I don't always have good days but I'm just better at managing them and recognizing how I'm feeling and implementing things that will keep me on a more even keel hello it's Volker here I hope you enjoy this episode you might not realize that I have been coaching for almost a decade through both third parties and private clients during that time I've worked with brands such as General Electric, Imperial Brands, DHL and Pepsi. However, this year I'm putting a big emphasis on growing my private coaching practice, improving lives of middle-aged men in leadership positions. So if you hit midlife transition point and you might be a bit stuck or looking to improve your work-life balance, your career or productivity, you want to build a new habit or you just want to become a better version of yourself, please hit me up. You can reach me on folkatopnatus, that's folkat, O-B-N-A-T dot U-S, or LinkedIn, whatever is easiest. Thanks, and now, back to the episode. I mean, you sort of mentioned there, or A, that, you know, you had, you work for some very high-profile organisations. I mean, how open were you in the workplace about your struggles, and, and well, did you just kind of put a face on it and and you know yeah just well man up yeah i mean it, in that in that first 10 year period absolutely not you know i i 
certainly certainly didn't like when I was an innocent I was in my early 20s my first kind of graduate job and yeah I didn't I didn't really even know what was going on um and and then it was kind of during that time and then went out to Asia that was when I first started kind of seeking help and I, I think I was probably open to a some degree um and at least I was talking to my my then girlfriend I was starting to see therapists and I was starting the journey of opening up but in the workplace specifically, it, it probably wasn't until until maybe eight years ago or something that I started to be a bit more open. And by then, I was running my own business anyway. So it wasn't really a... Um, I've never really been in a large organization where I've had to, to kind of be very open about mental well-being. But uh, yeah, I appreciate it. it's a real It's a real challenge. It's really down to the organizations to create an environment where people feel that they can. It's my turn, yeah, David? <laughs> what, what what inspired you to write a book then? Your, your own experience or? Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was approached by a publisher because basically I, I obviously I'd done this master's and I had, I'd been public about some mental health challenges. And I wrote an article that was published in the Telegraph about, about meeting, I met, I met up with a guy who bullied me uh, 20 years after. Very well. Kind of so I wrote an article about that, and and so I've been quite open, I guess, publicly about my struggles and, and things. I had that story uh, around being bullied and meeting up with a guy, and I think they were quite interested in, you know, I guess publishers find market trends, don't they? <laughs> and uh, it was like a, a book on mental health, specifically targeted towards men. Okay, let's find someone who would be appropriate to write that book, and so they approached me. So. I was very lucky in that sense, and uh, and then it, it was I wrote it, and it was very well received, and it, it, it and it's had been good reviews and, and so on. But yes, it was inspired, I guess, by the publisher, but as a result of my credibility as having the masters and and being open about my own mental health struggles. I mean, since you wrote the book, do you think? I mean, there's there's probably other things we can talk about than than just mental health, but. Do you find things have changed in terms of awareness for mental health? When I mean, you wrote the book in 2020, right? Is that correct? It was published in 2020. Yeah. yeah. So it, yeah, the year before. Um, almost five years on, right? I mean, yeah. do, do you think things have changed? Things have improved? Uh, yeah, I think it's improving all the time. I think it's, I think people feel frustrated with how workplaces, for example, as we were talking about, aren't maybe as, as accepting of um, mental health, but it is changing and the dial is moving. And the fact is, you're talking about a major cultural shift. You know, I talked, if I talk to my parents' generation about this kind of stuff, it's, you know, it's like a foreign language to them. Whereas I believe that, I mean, I've got a three-year-old and a, and a 10-month-old. I'm sure by the time that they're growing up, and it, I mean, it's part of the school curriculum, right? It's well-being and mental health is, is discussed. So cult, cultural shifts take time. It doesn't happen overnight. So for sure, things are better than they were five years ago but you know it takes it takes time so i've just got to ask about so you you met up with the guy that bullied you i mean was that almost like part of your therapy or was that a chance meeting and i mean did he realize what he'd put you through yeah i mean it was it was absolutely a um an arranged thing so i as part of my yes journey of self-discovery i guess i i did this kind of let's call it a personal development weekend and realized in that, that I had unresolved stuff with him, uh, kind of understandably, um, you know, I used to have dreams about 
uh, beating him up and slashing his car tires and smashing all his windows. And I'm not a violent person. I've never punched anyone in my life. Um, but there was obviously some deep kind of subconscious rage, anger there within me. So I recognized I needed to um, get in contact with him, not to uh, actually do that and be, try and beat him up or smash his windows or slash his car tires, but just to, just to talk to him. And so I, it was a, it was a strange thing because I found him on Facebook and I messaged him and he was actually abroad at the time. And we were living in London and within about 10 minutes, less than 10 minutes, he messaged me back. And I just said, look, I'm going through some stuff. I've got some hangups basically about what happened 20 years ago. Uh, would you be open to a conversation with me? Like I said, he replied within 10 minutes and said, yeah, absolutely. Whatever you need. Why don't we talk now? And I was like, oh my God, I'm about to talk to this guy who, believe me, 20 years ago, I left, I left the school with results and everything. I haven't you know, seen him. I haven't in contact with him at all since then. I tried to avoid thinking about him as much as possible. And then, yeah, so I then had this quite intense conversation for, I don't know, five, ten minutes, um, and me explaining why I wanted to you know, reach out to him and, and him being hugely apologetic about what happened. And then I I, I put down, there was a weird one, I put down the phone. We arranged to meet up a week later for a drink. I put down the phone, and I, I literally just, like, crumbled into a very, emo- I, I was just, bawling my eyes out crying on the floor like I've never had that kind of experience before I was just so intensely I think it was sadness but it was just like a very deep um emotion that was that was really hard to handle to be honest and it was like I said it had me in absolute tears I was sitting like, like on the floor I called my my girlfriend and um to kind of explain what had happened and how I'd spoken to this guy and and she literally, I couldn't get the words out. I couldn't speak. And she thought that someone had died. I mean, she was at that level of kind of concerned about me. Anyway, so I then, that was an intense experience. And, I, and the only way I can think about that now is that it was like I was taken back to my 13-year-old self. It was like I was all that. Because I used to lock myself in the toilets at school and, and cry, you know. And, uh, and that was a kind of safe space for me, right? So I guess it kind of took me back to, to that hearing his voice and thinking back to those experiences and so on. Anyway, so I think, I guess I contacted him. Uh, I then met up with him for a drink about a week later. And we had an amazing conversation. We had a couple of drinks and he was so profusely apologetic. He he was very, um, you know, he really regretted what had happened and um, obviously asked if there was anything he could do. Um, and he, he talked about why he thought he'd done what he'd done. Yeah, it was just, it was a very, very powerful conversation um, for him as well as me because it allowed him to let go. Interestingly, when I said to him, you know, could I contact, could I speak with you? He said, he, um, I said, I, said, I, bet, I bet you don't remember me. And he said, uh, oh, no, I absolutely do. I've been, th- I've been thinking about contacting you for the last 10 years. Wow. Wow. So he'd, he'd been going through his own kind of yeah, mental torture. And, and I said, you know, and, and I said, well, why didn't you? He said, well, some of the other people that in the group that he was in, the friends, they said, just let me know. He's got on his life, just let that sleepy dog's lie, let it go, kind of thing. And then he started listing out everything I'd done. It basically listed out my CV. So I know about your bike trip. I know about, you know, this business or whatever you work for. And, and it was a bit, it was like he'd been basically following me on LinkedIn or whatever to mm. make sure he hadn't completely screwed me up. So it was wow. like hairs on the back of my neck standing up going, that's just weird. Um, but like I said, it, it did therefore prove very helpful for him as well because yeah. there's nothing wrong with the guy. He's a perfectly nice bloke. You know, 
I'm a firm believer in that everyone is good at their core, but we all have stuff that happens to us in our lives, conditioning effectively, socially, culturally, familiarly. And we end up making bad choices as a result of some of that conditioning. And he made bad choices. He's a perfectly nice guy, you know? Yeah, I'm, well, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of quite blown away by that. Um, creepy, isn't it? That he followed you around and didn't... I mean, it's interesting because... It's actually really interesting. So, um, so I don't know if you want to hear that anecdote, but <laughs> I when, when I moved to the UK... I still had, you know, at least from from my perspective, unfinished business with, you know, ex-girlfriends or, or, you know, other, you know, for say, you know, non-girlfriends and and people in in Germany. And I decided to write them all a handwritten letter, you know, to to reconcile for myself, you know, to say, okay, you know, and and, and I would have never dreamed of, say, of stalking someone for 10 years and see if I, you know, I don't think I bullied any, I know I didn't bully anyone, but, you know. I don't think it was anything severe. It was more for me to say, okay, these are the feelings I have towards you and it's a shame how how, how we left it. Um, and so it's interesting to to hear that he he wouldn't even, if I say pick up the phone or send you an email or even a letter, right? But she stalked you for 10 years. And, and well, I mean, I don't know, stalking sounds like a bit of a strong word. Then having external gratification saying, you know, I, I don't need to contact him. His life is perfectly fine. I mean, at, at what point do you... You know, obviously, I don't know him, so I, you know, I can't, can't judge the situation. But I mean, for his own good, right? I think. Yeah, I don't know. Did anyone respond to your letters that you wrote? Uh, my, my, my ex-girlfriend did. Yeah, some some other people did. I mean, I didn't send like ten different letters, but like three or four, right? But mm. one 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 old friend of mine, unfortunately, I never heard back from him. And you know, you just have to let it go, right? But yeah, yeah, one one, one ex-girlfriend replied, which which was really nice, actually, mm. reconciling that. I guess, as you said, it was actually mainly for you, just the yeah. kind of cathartic experience of getting it down on paper and sending it. It didn't almost matter if they got, if you got a response. Yeah, although it was nice to get the response. So so similar to, to that situation, that's why I was thinking of it. But yeah, it's t- 10 years is a long time. So, um, I mean, are you still in touch with him? Are you, like, friends now? or? Well, not really. I mean, you know... Um... No, I mean, I've been in touch with her once or twice over the years. Actually, when I was approached by, I can't remember which publication it was, someone approached me saying, would you do an interview? I think it was actually a TV thing as well. Like an interview with him. They were doing some focus on bullying. They found my story. They were wondering whether they could get him and me in the same room as a TV thing. And I, I messaged him just saying, to totally understand if you don't want to do this, but if you want to trying to spotlight on bullying you know here's, here's an opportunity to do so and you know i i totally respect his decision to to say that that was not you know it's yeah very public i've been very careful not to mention his name anywhere um because it's not fair you know he's a 13 year old boy i mean you know and that's that's the thing isn't it like you know sort of volk is like oh you know he was stalking you whereas i'm like well you know yeah, you know, we, we all do things to survive. You know, that is sort of a human instinct. And as we get older, we realise that, you know... But I think when you're that young, you know, you, you I dread to think what I might have said to people at that age, you know. And, and I, I wasn't a bully. I guess I was... Well, you know, I, I was bullied. But um, my defence was humour. So, um, you know, and, and I... Well, I say humour... But I know that I probably said some 
pretty nasty things to you know to to people as a defense mechanism that i you know sort of think about you know i I mean that was sort of one of the reasons why i sort of asked about you know you getting in touch with him and stuff because and whether he sort of you know realized you know the ups well the, the trauma that it caused because you know you sort of on one hand it could have been you know he might have been like oh no sorry you know i don't remember that at all and you know, and I'm, I'm, I sort of wonder would that have been worse than him? I don't know. Was there a reaction that you were expecting or wanted? Um, so I'm sorry. I, I I know that we're kind of like suddenly zero focused on this one like incident. Uh, was there a reaction I was expecting from him? You're asking. No, it was more for me to try and release trauma. I guess the release the the negative feelings I had towards him and the experience. I wasn't really expecting any particular reaction from him at all. Med Up Men Down is sponsored by Welldoing. It's a great platform for finding a therapist or counsellor. They only accept verified professionals and they make it really easy to find one who is right for you. You can also use their personalised matching service so your availability, budget and needs are expertly matched with just the right person. If you didn't already know, Success in therapy is down to making a great match with your counsellor and the people at Welldoing really know how to make that happen. Plus, they have loads of stories, videos and interviews to support your mental health. Take a look at welldoing.org. Okay, right, so sorry. I'm going to move it on now. So, um, I mean, so you sort of got to a place where, you know, you realise that well, you you were on that journey of self discovery. I mean, can you sort of tell us about how well the anxiety would manifest itself? And, and and you know, you sort of talked about depressive episodes. I mean, again, it's something that I've been banging on about, but um, it's like the Robbie Williams documentary on Netflix, and he talks about depression. And um, there, there's this bit where he's rehearsing before like this huge gig that he's doing when he's at the you know the top of his game. The interviewer says, oh, are you, so are you excited about, you know, tomorrow's gig? And he's like, well, I've just come out of like a four-week depressive episode where, you know, I couldn't get out of bed. So, you know, to be honest, I can't get excited about anything. And, and you know, and the reporter just faces just goes blank. And he's like, do you want me to do a cheery one and tell you how excited I am? But I was just like, wow, you know, for me, that perfectly sums it up. You know, that, you, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or what you have when you're sort of in that whole you know you you can't find joy anywhere it was just like a numbness i think it's probably the best way of describing it it's like i mean certainly depression for me and everyone has their own experience of it it's just like a complete numbness you don't um really feel anything things that used to bring you joy just don't i remember eating food for example that i normally love like you know ice cream or chocolate or something and i just completely numb to it just not it didn't do anything for me doing activities that I would normally enjoy, hobbies and things, just didn't do anything for me for, for long periods of time. Um, and then, yeah, the kind of the standard thing of really struggling to get out of bed and and so on. And that's when I actually took the um, the antidepressant sertraline, which was really helpful. It kind of got me onto an even keel to, well, I took about six to eight months just so I could kind of deal with the day-to-day because I had to keep working and whatever, right? And, um, and then I was able to do therapy and and kind of start to figure out. I don't think, for me anyway, those kind of pills are a long-term fix. 
Um, I think they're very much a kind of like deal with the, get you to a place where you can cope with life. And then what you really need to do is actually talk and basically become more emotionally aware. I'd, I'd like to explore other areas as well, but if I say, I'd, I'd, we, we, if I say we didn't only get you on for, to, to talk about bullying and, and, and mental health, right? Uh, so, so I thought we, we, we could change track. I'd, I'd like to, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your, your, your journey on the bike as well, because I think it's a fascinating story. So, so in, in, in terms of the, the, the cycling you did from, from Malaysia all the way back, 10,000 10, kilometers is a, 10,000 miles. Long way. Oh, miles. Okay. So 16,000 kilometers, even, even longer, longer way. So what, what, what was the trigger for that? Uh, the trigger for that was living in Malaysia, wanting to, um, get home overland just to do something a bit different. We always talked about going back over trains and buses. And then I, you know, read about people doing long distance bike trips. Yeah. Like I mentioned, asked my girlfriend if she'd be up for it. And she crazily said yes, because I'm not sure I would have done it on my own. Okay. But she was she was up for it. And we thought, why not? I mean, let's give it a go. And to be honest, we didn't realize if we were going to make it or not. We just thought, we'll, we'll try. We'll do it. Give it our best shot. And, um, you know, at various points, we didn't, we almost didn't make it. I'm like, about. Two or three weeks into the trip, we were in northern Malaysia, having cycled up from Kuala Lumpur. And my girlfriend basically had a complete meltdown on the side of the road and threw a bike into a ditch and was like, pick the wrong girl, I'm not doing this. And we ended up having a conversation that lasted a while to, to try and get her back on the bike to carry on going. Um, and, you know, given that Malaysia was is pretty flat, actually, I was thinking, how on earth are we going to get across Central Asia? If, uh, if we're struggling in northern Malaysia. But, you know, like anything, often just getting going is the hardest bit. Um, and those first few weeks, weeks, although it was quite flat, were pretty brutal because we hadn't really trained in getting on a bike, having not really been sitting at a, at a desk for years and suddenly doing that every single day as if it's a job, you know, like seven days a week, you're, you're signed to six hours a day. Then it becomes, you know, it's, it's quite sore to start with. <laughs> and she hadn't really cycled and I and so it was it was particularly impressive that she managed to to kind of carry on and she actually still actually references something that i sent to her when in that moment of her kind of resigning from the trip on the side of the road in northern malaysia to her that um i said this is not a this is not a physical challenge pip this is a, a mental challenge and like i said she still references that today because it applies to many things in many kind of difficult things you have to get through if you know, and she and she is a mentally strong person, and she thought, well, if I can if I can sit at a desk and work every day, then why can't I sit on the bike and just treat this as a mental, and not something that I'm physically having to go through? Um, and that changed her complete mindset on it. So, did did you have a bike each, or did you have a tandem? We had a bike each. It was interesting. I, I suggested a tandem because I'm a much yeah. like this, and she is. And she said, no way, because I'm not going to get home and everyone's going to say, you just pulled me up all the hills. <laughs> Brilliant. So, she said, I'm not giving you that that uh, satisfaction. Yeah, we had a huge, got these very good, uh, surly long wheel trucker, solid steel bikes that could be fixed anywhere. So you're in the middle of Kazakhstan and the, one of the forks snaps, you need to be able to fix it with a welder. You know, you can't have an aluminium more carbon bike that is going to be shot if you crack the frame. So, and the bikes were heavy, right? We were carrying a lot of kit, all our camping kit and water and all the rest of it. 
So, so how, how long did you say it took you? A year. A year. Mm. Yeah, you need to carry a lot of kit. I mean, I suppose you, you know, there, there are things you, you can, obviously you can wash at the side of the road, but all your clothes and, you know, diff different climates as well, right, for a year. Yeah, but it's amazing how little you need, actually. I mean, like, we started a lot more stuff, and then a number of times we either just ditched stuff or sent it home on the trip. You just, you start to, like, whittle down what you actually need. You basically need one change of clothes. That was it. You know, and as long as you have waterproofs and, a, and some kind of jacket to keep you warm, then it was it was fine. I was going to say, did that almost sort of change your mindset of, you know, kind of being sort of boiled down to the bare minimums? Like, you know, this is all I need. It, it, you know, in the actually, um, I mean, you know, I guess the, the sort of the physical endurance of it is going to sort of change your, your view on things. But... Um, But yeah, just you know, the like we don't need this. You know, this this is well, yeah, superfluous for cycling. Um, so yeah, I mean, is, is that sort of something that you kind of brought into your life <laughs> after that? I mean, I have two kids now, right? So we have so much stuff; it's ridiculous. Um, but definitely, it makes you realize what you actually need, which is very little. And I love the simplicity. This was one of my favorite things about bike trip. Literally, all we had to do was cycle, find something to eat, and find somewhere to sleep. And that is it. Literally, that's all we had to do every single day. And we just did that day after day. Life was incredibly simple. People often say, oh my gosh, it must have been so hard, that bike trip. Daily life <clears throat> is much, much harder in, you know, Because we have stuff, responsibilities, time is being, you know, strained by all sorts of things. We had so much time, you know, and literally it was just, we had no internet connection. And so we had been to cycle from A to B, find something to eat, find somewhere to sleep. And that was it. We do it all again. A wonderfully simple experience. Highly recommend cycle touring to anyone. I think you so did it. I mean, did the experience sort of get better, and did you kind of become closer together? Um, I mean, you sort of talked about the tantrum, and you know, and I'm sort of yeah, I'm sort of thinking, well, would my would my marriage survive <laughs> such a trip? Yeah, I mean, can you sort of talk a bit bit more about? It's a good test. how it. Yeah, definitely a good test relationship. You know, spending 24 hours a day, and and you're definitely in highs and lows literally and metaphorically and yeah of course we you know we definitely had our fallings out and maybe we'd cycle you know 500 meters or a kilometer away from each other for a bit <laughs> <laughs> but no but generally speaking you know it was it was a great like we definitely feel that having gone through that together it's like we can deal with having children together we can we can deal with life throws at us because of how much we learned about each other and how we handle stress and And so on. Yeah, it was, it was it was a very kind of bonding experience to do, and it's definitely something. I'm, I used to travel a lot when I was younger, and I've done. I've been very fortunate and traveled a lot. It's been a major passion of mine. When I was 18, I took off with a rucksack around South America on my own, and it was great. But I didn't share that, those experiences with anyone. I just did it on my own, which which was you know maybe good for my own independence and so on. Right? I don't have anyone to think about those experiences with or talk about those experiences with I can say I was there people but when I talk to my wife about it it's like there's so many incredible experiences that we had on that trip that we often reference still today you know almost 
Isn't that was going to be my question. Like, how often do you kind of, you know, refer back to it or, you know, like you'll be in a situation like, well, at least it's not like that time when. Well, it's more, it's more about the positive experiences we had, to be honest. And most of those experiences were around people, particularly in Central Asia, which, you know, the, um, the Islamic countries were just so warm, welcoming. And, you know, in the Quran, it has this thing where it talks about the a, a guest should be treated as a gift from God. And they really take that quite literally. We were pulled off our bikes and pulled into an Uzbek wedding in Uzbekistan. We were given all sorts of meals, picnics on the side of the road in Kazakhstan, being given shots of vodka and then trying to cycle off. Um, <laughs> and you know, ending up in a town one night where we couldn't find anywhere to sleep. It's the worst thing you could try to camp. Trying to you know, ending up in a town. Couldn't find anywhere to camp, couldn't find anywhere to, to stay. There were no like hostels or hotels or whatever. And then just some random people just came up to us and said, oh, you're obviously lost or looking for a place. How can we help? Why don't you come and stay with us? You know, just amazing hospitality. I mean, I was staying there for three or four days, I think. A really wonderful family. So yeah, I mean, it really kind of reaffirmed uh, a belief of, of fundamentally people are good. So... So see, maybe my last question, because I'm, I'm, I'm time conscious as well, because we, ha- we haven't talked that much about midlife yet, right? We, we t- touched on your book and then we touched a lot on, on, on mental health and then this incredible journey, which I'm, to be honest, every time I speak to people that, that have done journeys like that, or as you say, right, traveled around South America with, with a rucksack, you know, as, as they say, you shouldn't have any regrets in life. At least that's kind of my opinion. But that's, that's you know, if there was one, it, it would be that I never traveled much when I was younger. So I always hope when I'm old, I'm going to be traveling, right? But. Who, who knows? We'll have but, the man up, man down, world backpacking tour. Because yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't travel either, Volker. So you go, maybe, maybe that's a goal for the next few years, right? A, yeah. a life event in, in, in 100 countries or something like that. I traveled a lot with work, but it's it's different, right? It's not experiencing um, cultures, which, which you know, I always enjoyed. So so, so I lived abroad and stuff, and, and obviously now I live abroad the last 22 years, but... <laughs> In, in terms of midlife, just just to maybe as, as a as a as, as a final question from my end, what what is your key learning from all that experience and and what you went through that that you take into midlife and 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 you think you know that 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 makes me as, as an executive coach you know as as, as a father as, as 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 a midlife midlife person I don't know if that's the term what's the what's the key key takeaway big question. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> nice simple one to finish on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me when you ask that is is around defining your own success. Like I, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I have friends who are doing all sorts of different things. Right? I've got friends who are working for banks in London earning a fortune. I've got friends who are artists. I've got friends, you know, and from different walks of life, from different places I've lived and so on, right? Doing different things. And comparison is the thief of all joy, right? As they say. And we all do it, right? We all have that kind of like, oh, I could have done that. And I could have been earning this much money or I could have been doing that, having those experiences or whatever. And I think for me, what I've realized that defining your own success is so important because when you're clear on that, it doesn't really matter what everyone else does. So... I definitely, as a younger person, used to compare myself a lot. Um, and you know, all I actually realized over the years was that the most important thing to me above everything else was have a family. And I, and I now 
have a wife and two wonderful children. I feel like I've won. I've like I feel like I won the lottery in life. You know, so that was my definition of success. Um, all these other things that I had around needing to earn X amount of money or to run this big business or whatever was all conditioning stuff that was put on me from my family, from my friends, from society. It wasn't actually me. When I boil it down, there are much more simple things that I want. Um, of course, I you know I have a career. I want to have a career. Uh, I love what I'm doing. But my focus, my absolute focus, is my family, and that is my definition of success: is having a family that spend time with them. I mean, oh, this is you know, phrase that comes up a lot. You know, in the, I feel like we you know we're only just sort of scratching the surface. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have one last question. I mean, you sort of said about talking about mental health with your parents. You know, is sort of like talking about completely foreign concept and. Um, you know, you sort of said what you felt, you know, what success looked like when you were younger. You're now like, that's, yeah, my definition of success is, you know, a close family. I mean, so has has there sort of been friction between you and your parents in, you know, as in, don't want to say disappointment, but are they happy for you being happy? Or do they kind of see success as different? I guess is what I mean. My parents are amazing. They're wonderful people, and they've always been incredibly supportive of me. You know, I love them both dearly, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have a very supportive, close family. No, so they've always supported what I've done. I think the reference I was making before was was just around generally that generation. Generation. Okay, sorry. Apologies. Apologies for enabling your parents. Well, no, they, they, they just struggle more with the concept of of mental health, right? And it's just it's a pretty foreign concept to them in it, they're like at the other end of the spectrum compared to my children who are just going to grow up and just going to be part of the lexicon right you're just going to talk about mental health you talk about they didn't even think that mental health was a thing right so it's just understandably there's a, a different understanding my dad passed away um at the end of march and um me and my parents divorced when i was quite young so i didn't have a sort of um you know, a typical relationship with him. But, you know, sort of, you know, talking about regrets, he, he'd sort of talk about, you know, it would take him a while to to sort of recover after he'd first woken up. And and I'd be, you know, and, and I'd never sort of really, well, I guess I'm like, oh, is he talking about the same anxiety that I often wake up with, you know, and that it takes, you know, like a bit of breathing. And, and also, I mean, like my grandma, I remember her sort of, now be described as having mental health issues but you know at the time it was well grandma's going a bit loopy or you know or it's you know they're 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 a nervous person or but yeah you know it's sort of interesting as you say that it's it is becoming the thing to talk about rather than oh we don't want to talk about uncle frank you know who's had a breakdown you know it's sort of or gone you know he's had to I could throw out all sort of like updated sort of terms, outdated, sorry, terms and things. But. Isn't that wonderful though? Isn't that wonderful that we live in a society in a world now where people are much more open and there's much more of a dialogue around this stuff and families don't have to hide that a member of their family has got a mental health challenge. So yeah, well, I think it's positive, right? There's lots to be optimistic about. Okay. We, we've sort of talked about a lot of things there, Charlie. 
but um, you know i guess if people want to get in touch with you or want to buy your book so if people want to get in touch with you about your coaching how do they find you and if people want to buy your book or you know consume any, any of your other content how do they find you so uh, the best is probably on my website charliehoard.com so that's h-o-a-r-e much better spelled than it sounds <laughs> yeah that's the best place and, and and my books available on amazon and in waterstones and so on brilliant well thanks a lot for your time and you know thanks for for being so open and honest and you know sort of being well ahead of the game i guess not at all well thanks for the invitation and uh, it's been nice talking to you guys thanks for listening to this week's episode feel free to reach out to Folker or david via our website www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.